Father, one of the great gifts is the compass on the boat called the Word of God. We could not find our way to heaven's shore without this compass. And we are ready now to devote another half an hour or so to watching it, to getting our minds on the dial, to bringing our whole being into line with this compass called the Word of God. And so I ask that you would open our eyes, that you would set the magnet of your glory at the needle of this compass, and that you would help us now to understand what we see. Seeing they do not see, Jesus indicted the leaders of his day. Seeing they do not see, and I tremble that that could be spoken of any of us. Hearing they do not hear, and seeing they do not see. Oh God, everybody in this room is about to see and hear something. And I pray for the second seeing, and the second hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday I marched with several thousand of you downtown and with millions of people around the world marching for Jesus. And at the corner of Nicollet and 6th Street, just as I turned the corner, we were singing the second verse of Crown Him with Many Crowns. And probably I was the only person in all of Minneapolis thinking about this message at that moment. Because it wasn't prepared yet, for one reason. But mainly because the content of the second verse of that hymn poses this morning's question. Let me read it to you if you're not familiar with that second verse. Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious in the strife, for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. He triumphed over death and he rose victorious for those he came to save. It sounds as though the writer of this hymn pictures a definite group of people that Jesus came to save. And he's going to save them. And so the question that I'm asking in the title that you see printed there in your worship folder and is forced upon us from verse 9 of chapter 2 in Hebrews, which we'll go to in a few minutes. For whom did Jesus taste death? Now, if you ask a hundred evangelical Christians in America today, for whom did Jesus taste death? 
95 will say with one word, everybody. And there is something very, very healthy about that answer and unhealthy. Let me try to explain to you why I think it's healthy and why I think it's unhealthy to simply say in answer to that question, Jesus tasted death for every human being. It's healthy because it's not cliquish. It's not elitist. It's not sectarian. It's healthy because that answer usually has an eye on the world. It wants other people to enjoy the pleasures of being forgiven and having eternal life and having our guilt taken away and the wrath of God removed. It's an expansive good heart that generally answers that way. And therefore, in that measure, it's a sign of health that an answer like that would come out of a heart. It's a, it's a healthy sign because it's an effort to give expression to this great truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, no exceptions, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's healthy, it's right to want to give expression to that truth, that everybody who believes without exception is covered by the blood of Jesus. It's right to say nobody can say, I really want to be saved by believing in Jesus, but I can't be because he didn't die for me. Nobody can say, I really want to be saved by believing in Jesus, but I can't be because he didn't die for me. Nobody can say that. Nobody can go to the Bible on any text and make that case about their own despair. Well, there are a lot of reasons why it's a healthy thing that 95 out of 100 evangelicals probably would say, Christ tasted death for everyone. One of the main obvious reasons that it's healthy is because that's what verse 9 says. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. We'll read the one verse. We'll tackle more of this context next week. But just this phrase from it today because the matter is so weighty. Let's read verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering and death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the answer of 95% of the evangelicals in response to the question, for whom did Jesus taste death? Everybody has good biblical warrant. But there is a big difference between saying what the Bible says and meaning what the Bible means. I wonder if you believe that. There is a big difference between saying what the Bible says and meaning what the Bible means. 
means. You can say the words of the Bible and mean error by them. Which is why I said there's something unhealthy about this answer. Let me try to explain what's unhealthy about the answer. He died for everybody, period. It's the period that's the problem. It's unhealthy to say that Jesus tasted death for everybody without asking and making very clear what you mean by tasted death for. That is, what did he accomplish for those who are in hell? If you do not make clear that you mean when you say he died for everybody, that he died for everybody in the same way so that he died for those who perish and go to hell in the same way that he died for those who are saved and go to heaven. If you don't make that clear, there's something unhealthy about this. And if you do make it clear that that's the case, you're wrong. That's what we need to study here. The fact that Christ died for everybody in the same way, those in hell and those in heaven, is not a fact. It's an error. It's not healthy because it's not true. My guess is that the 95% of the evangelicals who say everybody have not given much thought to what they are saying about the death of Jesus for perishing people. It's unhealthy not to know what Jesus accomplished and then to make statements about how broadly he accomplished it. Suppose, let's just take a little sample dialogue here. Suppose you say to me, I believe that Jesus died for everyone. And I say to you, then why is everyone not saved? Your answer would probably be, because you have to receive the gift of salvation. You have to believe in Christ in order for his death to count for you. And I agree with that. It's a very accurate statement. You have to believe in Christ if the death of Christ is going to count for you. But then I say, so you believe that Christ died for the people who reject him and go to hell in the same way that he died for those who receive him and go to heaven. And you say, perhaps, yes. And the difference is faith, the faith of those who go to heaven. Faith connects you with the benefits of the death of Jesus. Now, there are some real problems with that. Very big problems. And I'm only going to talk about one of them here. And I dwell on this, not for any particular intellectual or doctrinal curiosity, but because over my 50 years of life now, I have come to cherish being loved by God 
with a covenant love that moved him to die for me. And I believe that if you affirm that Christ died for everybody in the same way, those who are in hell and those who are in heaven, you cannot know the depths of covenant love that God has for you. You can only affirm a kind of general, spread out love that's the same for the perishing and the same for the redeemed. And therefore, you never know what it is to be loved by your husband. And I dwell on it because verse 3 says we are not to neglect our great salvation. And I believe with all my heart that an affirmation that Christ tasted death for those in hell and for those in heaven in the same way is to neglect a tremendous dimension of the greatness of our salvation and to make light of it, in fact. It is as though a wife insisted on her husband's only loving her and sacrificing for her the same way he loves every woman and sacrifices for every woman in the world. Because, Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her to himself in glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. If you do not know this morning the love of God pursuing you the way a husband pursues a wife to make her his own in glory, uniquely assembling you, the redeemed, to himself in covenant love as in a marriage, then you're missing the greatness of your salvation. That's why I dwell on this. There is something so glorious that so many evangelicals don't understand and not understanding it they don't feel it and therefore their lives are thin and their relationship with Christ is narrow and their conception of covenant love is small because they've never been taught it is a precious and unfathomable covenant love that moved Christ to die for his church his bride in a unique Way. The death of Jesus is for the bride different than for the perishing. Now I said there were many problems. And I'm only going to deal with one of them and I haven't gotten to it yet, but here it is. If Christ died for the sins of those who are finally lost and the sins of those who are finally saved in the same way, then what are the lost being punished for? Were their sins covered by the death of Jesus and by the blood of Jesus? Were they covered? Were they paid for? Were they atoned for? If so, what are these flames licking at? 
Christians, born again believers in Jesus Christ, say the words of 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ died for our sins. And when we say that, at least what I mean, and this is the center of my life, it's the center of the universe, it's the center of the church, what I mean when I say those words, Christ died for my sins, I mean He paid my debt, which my sins created. It is paid. I mean, He removed the wrath of God from me. It is gone. It is gone. It is gone. There is no condemnation toward me because of the blood of Jesus having assuaged the wrath of God. He averted it from me once for all by the sacrifice of Himself And I mean that the curse of the law was lifted. And I am not under a curse anymore. My sins are covered. The curse is lifted. The guilt is gone. The wrath is removed. I am a free man once and for all. And that can never ever be brought back upon me because of the death of Christ for me. Jesus accomplished that. He did that for John Piper. That's my life. Now, what would it mean to say if an unbeliever said in hell that Christ died for me? Which is what 95% of the evangelicals believe. In the same way that I just described, it would mean that the debt for his sin was paid. Then why is he paying it in hell? It would mean that the wrath of God was removed. And what is this punishment being poured out on him for eternity in the lake of fire? It would mean that the curse was lifted if Christ died for him the way he died for me. What then is this curse resting upon him to all eternity? And here's the answer that would be given. People go to hell for rejecting Jesus. Not for their sins. That's not true. That is not true. People go to hell both for their sins and one of those sins is rejecting Jesus. And the reason we know that is because the Bible teaches that plainly. For example, in Colossians 3, verse 5. Paul refers to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. And then he says, on account of these things, the wrath of God will come. So we may not say the cross really did atone for every sin except the sin of rejecting Jesus. That's not true. That's not true. People who reject Jesus really will be punished for their sins. The books will be opened according to Revelation. And all the deeds will be read out. And the sentence of condemnation will be just because those sins will come upon their own head and be their just condemnation. They were not covered by the blood of Jesus. 
So we go back to the problem. In what sense did Christ taste death for their sins? If they're still guilty, if they still suffer punishment, if the wrath of God is still upon them. Now, perhaps someone will use an analogy. Let's try this. So I'm trying, I just, as I, as I worked on this, I just kept putting myself in the shoes of this good-hearted, expansive, non-sectarian, non-elitist, non-narrow, evangelistically-minded, mission-oriented, mistaken person. And here's an analogy, I believe, that that person, whom I used to be, and perhaps most of you still are, I don't know, an analogy that I would have used and you might use. Perhaps someone will say, it's like a ticket. It's like a ticket. It costs a lot, and the ticket gets you to heaven. And God, by the death of his son, bought the ticket, and he extends it to you. If you don't take the ticket, you don't get on the train. Good analogy, good Sunday school material. And the ticket is the death of Jesus. The price of the ticket is the death of Jesus. But it doesn't get you to heaven. you got to take the ticket and hand it to the conductor. And then you get on the train and then the death of Christ covers all your sins. Now that's partly right. That's, most analogies are partly right. Nobody gets on the train without the ticket of of the shed blood of Jesus. And you have to take the ticket. You gotta take the ticket. You have to believe. But there's a problem with this analogy. It's this. You gotta think through what is the purchase of this ticket? And the purchase of this ticket is the canceling of the sins of unbelievers. That's the only thing that's keeping you out of heaven. Sin. Therefore, the purchase of the ticket is the canceling of the sins. But what we've seen is that the people who go to hell suffer for their sins. And therefore, they weren't canceled. And the analogy fails. No ticket was there. If the ticket is the canceling of their sins, which is what a ticket would have to be, their sins are going to bring them to destruction and keep them from heaven. So their sins were not canceled in the cross And the ticket was not purchased for them. Now, the ticket for heaven, which Jesus obtained for you and me by his blood, is the wiping out of our sins. I mean, if you've got another way to get there, I tremble to think what it would be. The ticket that gets you to heaven is the wiping out before God of your trespasses. 
the covering of them, the bearing of them, never bringing them to mind again. They will never bring me to ruin. Hebrews 10, 14 says, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By one offering, he has perfected John Piper for all time in his sight before his presence. Paul calls it justification. By one offering, perfected for all time. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ also offered once, was offered once to bear the sins of many. He really bore my Sins. What does that mean that he bore my sins? It means I don't have to bear my sins. My sins have been punished, executed, put out of existence. If you say to me, therefore, at the cross, Christ died for your sins, John Piper, in the very same way that he died for those on whom their sin is now being poured out in hell, you strip from me the preciousness of the assurance that there was a real transaction by which my sins once for all were covered. And you leave me dangling in a kind of no man's land with everything hanging on self Redemption. That's a pretty high price to pay in order to say he died for everybody in the same way, which I don't believe he ever says in the Bible, nor does it allow that we say he said it. Now, to show this, we're finally coming to the text. Verse 9. And what I want to do in the remaining minutes is just walk you through the context and show you that in the writer's mind, the word everyone in verse 9 is everyone in a certain group. You know, don't you, that whenever you use the word everyone, you, right now, not just when you read the Bible, but when you use the word everyone or all, you always mean within a certain group. For example, at a staff meeting, I look around and I say, is everybody here? And I don't mean <laughs> Boris Yeltsin. I mean the everyone that I have in mind in the group. And you use language that way, so does the Bible. So that whenever you see the word all or everyone, you ask, what group? Is it humanity total? Is that the everyone? Maybe. Or is it some other more definite group? And I want to show you, simply by reading the text with you and pointing you to it, that this is what he has in mind, namely a smaller group. Let's read it. Verse 10. He has just said that, uh, well, let's read verse 9. Christ tasted death, at the end there, Christ tasted death for everyone. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. In other words, if you connect verses 9 and 10 now, 
What you see is that immediately after saying Christ died for everyone or he tasted death for everyone, he gives as an explanatory support for this that God's assessment is that that should be done or that the bringing of many sons to glory should be done through sufferings. So that the everyone is the sons being brought to glory. He tasted death for everyone, for it was fitting that he should taste death or suffer in bringing many sons to glory. So the first clue in verse 10 that the everyone is somebody in particular is given by that phrase, bringing many sons to glory. This is exactly what Jesus said or what John said in John 1152. You remember that text? He said Jesus would die to gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus died, John 1152, to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Verse 10 of Hebrews 2 says... God thought it fitting to bring many sons to glory through suffering and death. So the children of God in John 11:52 and the sons being gathered together and being led to glory are the group to which everyone applies in verse 9, I believe. Take the next verse and see if it helps. Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and those who are sanctified, that is the sons he is leading to glory, are all from one father, from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, then he quotes Psalm 22, 22, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the great congregation. I will sing thy Praise. In other words, in this verse, what he does is take that group of people, the many sons that he is leading to glory, and he defines them here as his brothers or his brethren. So you have many sons being led to glory, and then you have them being called the brethren of Jesus. And that's what he accomplished when he tasted death for every one of them. Verse 13 is even more pointed. Here, he goes a step further and he calls these sons, these brothers, children of Christ. Again, I will put my trust in him. This is Christ's own confession of faith in his father along with his brothers. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. Now that's very significant. Because that's identical with what you find in John 17, 6. In John 17, 6, Jesus prayed, Father, I manifested thy name to those whom thou gavest to me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. 
And then he says in verse 19, I sanctify myself for them. So you have these, this everyone in verse 9, he tasted death for everyone because it's fitting that he should suffer to lead many sons to glory, sons who are deigned to be called his brothers, whom now he calls his children, whom God gave to him out of the world. These are not people who just willy-nilly happen upon Jesus and believe. These are people upon whom the Father set his favor and gave them as children to the Son so that the effect of the Son's death would be theirs. That's what happened to me. That's the only reason I'm a Christian. God set His favor upon me. He overcame my rebellion. He drew me to Himself. He put me under the effectual bloodshedding of His Son. And all the covenant blessings purchased for me by the blood are now mine in Christ. And it is all owing to His amazing grace, as verse 9 says, through grace. But it even gets more particular in verses 14 and 15. Look at this. Connect all of that that we've seen. Leading many sons to glory. They are his brethren. They are his children whom God has given to him out of the world. Now what does he say about the children in verses 14 and 15? These children whom he gave to Jesus out of the world. Oh, how easy it would be to read verses 14 and 15 out of context and say the children are humanity, period. They're not humanity, period. We know that from verse 13. They are children given to Jesus out of the world. What does it say about them? It says, since then the children share in flesh and blood. That is, since the children have a human nature, Christ himself likewise partook of the same nature. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, namely every one of those children, those brothers that God has given to him out of the world. This is remarkable because you see what verse 14 and 15 is saying is that the design of the incarnation, why did Jesus become a human? What's the answer of verse 14? Why did Jesus become a human? Answer, because the children who had been given to him by the Father were human. And had to be died for. And therefore the whole design of the incarnation and its goal, the death of Jesus, is for the children who had been given to him, namely his brethren, namely the sons, that he's leading to glory. And therefore, by the grace of God, he tasted death for every one of them. Now I'm going to stop there. I could keep going in chapter 2 and every verse would affirm the same thing. If you read it carefully, every verse would affirm that the author has in mind this remarkably definite work of God. But I'm going to stop and close with an application. I am not the least bit interested this morning in limiting the preciousness 
and effect of the death of Jesus in the life of anybody. I want you to hear loud and clear now. Let this be heard. Are you listening? We got about three minutes to go. I want you to hear loud and clear that God so loved, loved in such a way the world that he gave his son so that in this room this morning, anybody who believes will not perish but be covered by the blood of Jesus. Is that plain? If nothing else is plain in this very difficult message, let that be plain. Christ died so that everyone who believes is saved by the death of Jesus and the death of Jesus covers him. That's an agreed upon point. But when you believe, when you believe as you ought to believe, you know what you discover? You discover that your faith, like every other spiritual benefit freely given to wicked people like you and me, that your faith was also purchased by the blood of Jesus. And that through purchasing your faith effectually by the outpouring of his own son's blood, God released upon you a tidal wave of mercy, not wrath, which overcame your rebellion, opened your heart, brought you to your knees, submitted you to the Bible, and made you a believer. You are a believer this morning because Christ bought your belief. That's what I want you to believe. That's what I want you to embrace. So that he gets the credit and you get a foundation underneath your feet that is bigger and stronger and deeper than anything else you've ever known. Mark this. You did not make the cross effective in your life by your faith. The cross became effective in your life by purchasing your faith. Now I'm going to say that again, because that's heavy, and it's so important. You did not make the cross of Christ effective in your life, in the atoning of your sins. The cross of Christ has sovereignly become effective in your life by purchasing your faith. You owe your faith to the cross. Your unbelief is a great sin. Was it covered by the cross, believer, or wasn't it? If you say it wasn't, you atone for your own sin and you get to heaven on your own strength. If your faith was covered by the blood of Jesus, that is your unbelief, then everything you are is owing to Christ. And his cross purchased for you not only the forgiveness for all of your many sins, but for your unbelief so that you would be a believer. So, let me glory in this, please, as we close. Let me glory in this. And would you join me? I glory in this truth 
that Jesus Christ tasted death for me by bearing my sin once for all. I glory that he tasted death for me by removing the curse from John Piper. I glory that he tasted death for me by lifting the wrath of God so that these things, my sin, my guilt, my curse, my wrath, can never come upon me again because they were really removed, really removed, really removed at the death of Jesus. Not just possibly removed. That I make happen later. They were really removed. John Piper was really viewed by his father and his sin was finished when Jesus died. And I come into it bought by Jesus. One last sentence. Christ, this is the answer to my title. For whom did he die? For whom did he taste death? Christ tasted death. For everyone who has faith. Because the faith of everyone who believes was purchased by Christ. I'll say it again. Christ tasted death for everyone who believes. Because the faith of everyone who believes was purchased by Christ. Christ.